And I'm grateful to be here when uh, Pastor Brandon reached out a few months ago. I was so excited. Uh, I love this church so much. My wife and I talk about it. This, when we come here, it feels like we've come home. Um, and that's a very special feeling. And the older you get, there's few and fewer and fewer places I find that feel truly like home. And this is one of those places. I love your pastors. I love your leaders. Uh, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to fill in for Pastor Matt today. And I just want to say, like, I want to commend you as a church and your leaders that you care enough about your pastors to give them time away to attend to their own souls. Because pastoring is hard work. You know, the joke is, what do you do the other six days of the week? Well, the other six days of the week is usually dealing with a lot of conflict uh, and dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And so I just, I'm grateful for you that you've given Matt some time away. And I know he is very excited to be back. He and I talk often. Uh, We planted this church. Eric might have been right. It might have been 12 years ago. We planted this church 15 years ago, and I preached my last sermon here about 10 years ago, and I still remember the sermon. It was from the book of Acts. Um, you probably remember it too if you were here, because I think it went 70 minutes, <laughs> maybe, maybe 75. Uh, but that's what you do with the last sermon, right? You, you're like, I've got so much I want to say, and so you just cram everything that you possibly can into the thing, and, and you let it rip uh, it's your, your parting words. Well, the text we're looking at today is actually Jesus' last sermon, his last public sermon in Matthew's gospel. Everything that happens after this text happens in private with just Jesus and his disciples. So what he's teaching here, this is the culmination, the summation of everything that he has taught to the crowds, to those who are seeking him out, to his disciples, and even to his enemies. This is the last and final word that he gives before going to the cross in public. And Matthew includes this here because Matthew, like Jesus, he wants this sermon to be imprinted upon the minds and consciences of everyone who reads his gospel. This isn't just one of the teachings. This is in many ways the summation of so much of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples over the course of the three years leading up to this moment. And it's a sermon about the end of the world. It's an intense sermon. It's a sermon about the day of judgment. And really, Matthew 24 and 25, this whole section, it's called the Olivet Discourse, this whole section is Jesus teaching about the day of judgment. He knows that three days after giving the sermon, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the garden. He's going to pray and be betrayed by his friends. He's going to be arrested. He's going to die alone on the cross, abandoned by his disciples. And so this is his final word to them before all that takes place, saying, hey, I mean, he even tells them, he says, you're going to fail, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble. But I pray that after that, you will rise again and walk in obedience. And so all of that to say, this is a really, really important passage. It's a famous passage, and it's a challenging passage. And so I want to ask you if you're able to please stand with me. We're looking at Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then they will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word of this challenging text, we know your spirit's at work in our midst, and we know, Father, that you love us, that you are for us, that in sending your son, that was the the demonstration and the proof that you are not against us, that you are for us, that you want to save, to redeem, to heal. And so I pray in light of that reality, you would give us the ears to hear, the the eyes to see, the hearts to receive the challenging message that's in this text for us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I mean, think about this for a moment. Jesus, the humble carpenter, who for three years... has been hanging out with blue-collar fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, all the people who are on the margins and fringes of society, the lowly. He's been serving them, healing the sick, washing feet, multiplying loaves. I mean, there is a center of power in Jerusalem, and Jesus has spent no time near that. Instead, he's been living in the margins among people that the world would forget. And then he gets to his last sermon and he says, but I want you to know, on the last day, I'm going to return. And I'm going to return, he says, with all of my angels. And I don't know how many that is, but I know it's in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. I mean, imagine being one of Jesus' disciples here. You know, at times they question him, like, does he really know what he's doing? This is kind of strange, but you've seen the miracles, so you know there's something to it. And he says, on the last day, I am coming, and all of my angels are coming with me. 
And we have to realize that in the Bible, angels are terrifying creatures. For us, babies are usually, or angels are usually viewed as babies with wings. In the Bible, they are terrifying creatures. The first thing they always say to people when they appear in the Bible is, don't be afraid. Because when they show up, what happens? People get really afraid. It says on the last day, Jesus, all of his angels, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And on that throne, while he's sitting on that throne, we are told that all of the nations will be gathered before him. All people from every corner of the, gro- the globe, across all periods and times in history, all people will be gathered before him. And he's going to separate all people into one of two groups. He's going to put some people on his right, the sheep, those that he calls the righteous. And he's going to, he tells them that those on his right, they're going to enter into the kingdom that has been prepared before the foundation of the world. This is the, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the, the, the place and the reality that every single one of us long for. It's the place where there's no, no sickness, no disease, no depression, no anxiety, no death no violence, no hatred. It's the place where all is well, all will be well, where peace rules. It's the place that every time we look and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be, this promise to those on the right, it is the way it's supposed to be. That's what everyone is longing for. And he says, on that day, those on his right, the sheep will inherit the kingdom, but there are those who will be on his left who will enter into the fire of destruction. And, you know, I, I'm not totally a guest preacher here, but I will say giving a sermon like this, text like this to the guest coming in, it's a bit challenging. And this is a hard passage. There's going to be a separation, some to eternal life, some to judgment and the fires of destruction. And the question is, What is the basis of that separation? How do you end up on the right or the left? How will Jesus judge all of the nations? And what's surprising, I think, is the answer given is not who prayed to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The answer is not like who confessed their sins and turned to Jesus and trusted him. Plain reading of this text is that that the basis of separation will be how we can consider for those in need around us. I mean, consider the people mentioned here. Just, Just let's think about who Jesus is talking about. He talks about the hungry and the thirsty, people who are in an emergency situation, And the righteous are those who provide assistance. They see someone in dire need and, you know, they're lacking in in something very basic and essential to life and they get to action and they give them food or water. When Jesus talks about the stranger, stranger in that day means something different than our day. Stranger usually was a way of referring to immigrants or refugees. People who were fleeing from their home country or their homeland trying to save and preserve their life. 
And Jesus says, the righteous will be those who invited them in, cared for them, advocated for them, offered friendship and help. Next, Jesus talks about the naked, and the naked are the poorest of the poor. The people people who don't even have bootstraps to pull themselves up by. And the righteous are those who see those people, and they don't say, well, you know, you got yourself into the mess, get yourself out of it. Instead, they show up, and they give them clothing, and they meet real physical needs. The sick, it's just like it sounds like. People who are sick, people who can no longer contribute to society or to their families, but instead actually in, in a very real way become kind of, uh, I don't want to say a drain, but they take more than they can give. And Jesus says the righteous are the ones who go to the sick and visit them. Same with those in prison. They provide emotional support, encouragement, comfort. And when you think about all of the emotional and physical realities represented in this text, it's pretty comprehensive. And Jesus is saying that the righteous are those who move towards the hurting, the vulnerable, the needy. They move towards those who are lacking with care, concern, and a desire to help. And I'll tell you, this is... I've wrestled with this text for years because I have my theology, right? My theology says we, we are saved uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I always hate it. I hate it when the Bible gets in the way of my theology. You know what I mean? You're like, wait, no, no, no. This is con- Jesus kind of confuses. He's made everything more confusing than it needs to be. And I think that's why a lot of Christians are like, let's just stick with Paul. Because when you get to Jesus, he says some stuff that's really hard. And, and Paul, he gives the formulas. And I love Paul. Like, I love all of God's word. But Paul's pretty clear. I mean, some, some of it's not clear at all. But on the basics, the foundations, Paul is clear. And then you come to Jesus. And he's like, oh yeah, judgment day is coming. I'm coming with all of my angels. It's going to be a day of glory and dread. It's going to be terrifying and wonderful. And I'm going to judge based upon how you cared for the lowest of the low, those in need. This makes us uneasy. I mean, at the heart of the Christian faith is is this belief we're justified by our faith, not by our works. And yet Jesus says, but you will be judged according to your works. And I think trying to find a nice and easy solution to this doesn't honor the text. I think trying to find some kind of workaround, it doesn't honor the tension of the text. And I think actually when we let ourselves sit in that tension for a little bit, that's when God does really wonderful, I found a wonderful work on our heart. When we, instead of, instead of looking for the easy, you know, the, the easy way out, we just sit with it and say, what, what could Jesus be teaching here? That's when God does wonderful things. And I will say, I'm going to go to Paul here because I think Paul is actually very helpful in understanding this. I think one of the most helpful places we can go is to Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, Paul affirms in verses 8 and 9, 9 when he talks about salvation, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul's pretty clear here. It's by grace that we're saved. It comes through faith. It's not even our own doing. It's a gift that God gives to us. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation is a gift that God gives us by faith. But the very next verse, attached to this thought, it's not like Paul says, and let me change the subject. He continues on into verse 10, and way too many Christians stop at verse 9. 8 and 9, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not a result of our, our works, so that no one may boast. But at the very next verse, Paul writes, for we are his, that's God's, workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, you could say recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The image that Paul is giving here, he's saying God is like a sculptor and we are all rough blocks of marble. And when he saves us, God goes to work on our lives with a hammer and a chisel. And he's got his son and then he's got each of us. And he's committed to chiseling and forming each of us into the very image of his son. You know, Romans 8, one very famous verse, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And the very next line, we are told, what is that purpose? That we be conformed to the image of God's Son. This is how we can hold together this fact that we're saved by faith, but we're also judged by our works. Because God... God is absolutely committed to forming us, forming you, Christian, into the image of his son. Not just in what you do, but also in what you you love and what you long for and how you care for people and particularly how you care for the hurting. You know, I was talking with a friend here in Ohio this week and uh, he said, did you guys really spend 80 weeks going through Matthew's gospel? And I said, we did. And, you know, we're almost done. And he was like, did it get repetitive? And I said, no way. Matthew's gospel, this has been one of my favorite sermon series ever. Um, but it's been so challenging. And there are some themes that when you sit with a book that long, there are some themes that emerge. And one of the themes that emerges in Matthew's gospel is this idea of mercy, which appears again and again and again. That Jesus, like right at the center of what it means to be his disciple is that you are a merciful person. And a merciful person is a person who, is, who isn't looking for payback, who isn't looking for revenge, and who isn't even fighting for all that they, they deserve and all that's owed to them. Merciful person's quick to forgive, quick to listen, quick to give the benefit of the doubt. Merciful person doesn't entertain revenge fantasies. I can't be the only one who has like anger fantasies, you know? When someone wrongs you, it's like an episode of Seinfeld. You get in your mind of what you're going to say to them the next time you see them. A merciful person doesn't live like that. They live into the image of Jesus who is 
quick to forgive, quick to show compassion, quick to show mercy. And what Paul is getting at, what Jesus is getting at, is God. He cares not just about our actions, but about our hearts. That's another big theme in Matthew's gospel. God cares about the center of who we are. And I know some of you are raised in a church, a family, a religious structure that told you it was all about what you do and not do. It's all about your behavior. And I, I want to be clear, God, I, I believe he deeply cares about our behavior. But Matthew, and Jesus in Matthew, shows us that God cares ultimately, he cares more about our hearts. And we see this in Peter, right? Peter, we got a front row <laughs> uh, view of all of his massive fail failings in Matthew's gospel. And you're going to see some more in the coming weeks. But still, at the end, what do we know about Peter? Even after Peter denied Jesus three times, do you know the next time he sees him, what's Peter doing? Does anyone know? He's fishing, right? And what's Jesus do? He makes fish tacos for breakfast, right? <laughs> and then when Peter sees Jesus, what does he do? He jumps off the boat, and he wants to go be with him. And that's a very important scene. Uh, it's a very important point throughout Matthew's gospel that God cares about our hearts, not just about what we do, but about who we are and about what we love. And so the first thing I want you to see is that this text doesn't contradict our understanding of justification by faith or the nature of God's grace. I would just say it deepens how we understand and think about grace. Dallas Willard, there's a great quote. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace Grace is opposed to this, having this attitude that if I don't do enough good things, then Jesus won't love me. Or I've done so many good things, Jesus has to love me. That's not biblical. But effort, effort is us saying, I want to bring the teachings of Jesus to bear on my life. You know, the first sermon series we ever, I ever preached here, I ever preached anywhere, was the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was... <laughs> Yeah. Rookie mistake. Uh, and I remember preaching it and thinking, well, each one of these teachings is Jesus just showing us how bad of sinners we are and that we need him to save us. And I think that part of that's true. But I don't, preaching through it again last year, I actually think that's the Sermon on the Mount's more than that. I think Jesus really wants us to be people who keep our word and who remain faithful to our spouses, and who don't spend our days worrying about money, and who don't live anxiously, and who do forgive. I was talking with my friend Jonah, who was actually the first worship leader here, and we both feel like, you know, these are hard, but it's not like these things are impossible. And I think Jesus really does want us to grow into those types of people. But we've got... To get there, you've got to get verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 before you can get to verse 10. Because if you still think, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves by, by what you do, 
man, the pressure to always get it right, you'll never actually be able to live into that life of love and mercy that he calls us to. So this text, the first invitation, I should have said this way earlier, sorry. The first invitation from this text, I would say, is to to expand and to live into an expansive understanding of God's grace. And what I mean by that is God's grace, it doesn't just save us, it also shapes us and it forms us into the image of his son. Now, the question that a lot of people have about this text, who are the least of these Uh, For the majority of church history, the least of these were understood to be Christians over the last century. A lot of people said, least of these is anyone in need, and there has been a lot of ink spilled, arguing back and forth. Who exactly is Jesus talking about in this text? Because it is important to be clear that we are not saved by philanthropy. That it's not just, oh, you did something good, okay, now you're in. I mean, Jesus, if that's the case, he wouldn't be going to the cross. But I think sometimes we... We get in there and we wrestle, and I personally think he's probably talking about fellow Christians because he refers to them as my brothers, my brothers and sisters, which is always a way he refers to other Christians. But I do know a lot of Christians who they will say, well, he's just talking about how we care for other Christians as if that means that we can somehow neglect everything else that he's taught. Because... Jesus, throughout his ministry, he constantly cared for the poor, the hungry, the naked. Constantly. And he didn't withhold care until their conversion. He didn't say, do you trust me as your Savior? Okay, now I'll heal you. I mean, there were a couple of times he would challenge and push and try to stir faith in people. When he saw crowds of hungry, hurting people, he was moved by compassion And so I think trying to draw this, and some of those would be disciples and some wouldn't, I think trying to say, are are we called? I actually think it's the wrong way to approach this text. I think too many people approach this text and they say, all right, what are we supposed to do? Who are we supposed to show this kind of care for? And I think the right way to read this text is to ask ourselves, who are we becoming? Not who should we care for? Which group do we need to focus on? Not that that's entirely wrong to ask, but I think the bigger question to ask is, who are we becoming? Are we becoming like the sheep, the righteous, or are we becoming like the goats? Because throughout Jesus' life and his teaching, he shows that his disciples, they're not those who are selective with their love or their grace or their compassion. I mean, what is the greatest commandment? Love God. Jesus, give us, give us the greatest commandment. Just give us one. Let us master that one, and then we can, we can move on. And he says, no, love God and love your neighbor. And like Christians, like religious people are, want to do, all right, Jesus, but who is our neighbor? And what does he say? Does anyone remember? He tells a story, a parable, about the Good Samaritan. He says, you want to know who your neighbor is? You want to know who you're obligated to love? Anyone that you cross, you know, anyone that you cross path with, paths with who's in need, that's your neighbor. Christian or not, believer or not. 
And so, what's the big takeaway from this? What's the application? I think there's a lot, and I trust that God's Spirit is stirring different things in different people in the room. I want to give you one application that God has brought to bear on my life. I think one of the, the clearest applications of this for me, and I think for probably many of you, this text calls us to ordinary faithfulness in the messiness of life and relationships and in the face of need. It calls us to ordinary acts of faithfulness. Being faithful with what God has put before us. You know, I think it's so interesting, the charge that Jesus will bring against the unrighteous goats, it's not that they've done some great wrong. He doesn't put people on his left saying, you were murderers, you were adulterers, you were blasphemers. What was the great failing of those on the left? They didn't do good to those who were in need before them. Conversely, the praise that Jesus gives to the righteous is not that they live lives of like great sacrifice. It's instead that they fed hungry people with bread and gave water to thirsty people. I don't want to, they help people who are sick. I don't want to diminish those things, but these aren't big, flashy miracles, acts of faith. He doesn't say, you went to the, the darkest parts of the world and proclaimed the gospel. Come on in. He said, no, you saw someone hungry and you went and you got some bread and you gave it to them. They're not big, flashy miracles or great acts of faith. They're small, easy to overlook acts of mercy and love flowing from a heart that's been changed by Jesus. And I say this because, and again, this is part of my story and it's part of this church's story a little bit, but years ago, man, I just had this desire to be sold out for Jesus. And I think that's a good desire. I think that's a good thing. I think that's what we should all want. But sometimes the way that shows up is this, us thinking that like real faithfulness to Jesus is doing great, great acts as opposed to just being faithful with what he's put before us. You know, David Platt, who I respect, wrote this book, Radical. I'm sure many of you read it. It hit the New York Times bestseller list, what it means to be a radical disciple of Jesus. And I don't don't dislike the book at all. I think there's some really good and helpful things in it. But I think that that book and that kind of whole mindset, it misses the fact that more often than not, it's in the ordinary moments of life that our faithfulness is really put to the test. It's the ordinary moments of life. It's how we show up to the people right before us. Friends and family, children, parents. You know, I was reading, researching this text. Martin Luther, referring to this passage once, said, every home is a little hospital where a loving parent performs all the ministries of this text with their children, spouse, and extended family. Any stay-at-home moms or working moms, And dads, but moms typically more than dads. At least that's how it goes in our house. My wife can be home all day. She can walk out for three minutes, and I get four kids asking me, where's mom? Where did mom go? It's like they feel her leave. Like the the force. Something happens. And they ask for food, and they ask for water, and they're sick. And again, I don't don't want to trivialize what Jesus is teaching here, but I think Luther is on to something. 
I know way too many moms and dads who are raising their kids. It's maybe in college you thought, man, I'm going to do this amazing, incredible thing for Jesus. And now you change diapers and you, you feed your kids and you give them a bath. And it's kind of like this Sisyphean life. You know, like you give them a bath, they get dirty. And you give them a bath and then you feed them. And just as soon as you're done feeding them, they're hungry again. And you're wondering, what does all of this mean? Well, I think... I think this text should be a real encouragement. It goes beyond our families, though. Neighbors across the street, across town. Ordinary acts of mercy and love. I think this text tells us before we try to live radically, we should do our best to master the ordinary acts of faithfulness, and we should step into the need that God puts before us. I don't want you to mishear me. Some Christians are called to take the gospel to unreached people groups, to storm the gates of hell, and praise God. But most of us are called to be things like mechanics or teachers or baristas or plumbers or social workers. And you know, I live in a seminary town, and I watch so many people come thinking like, I'm going to seminary because I want to serve God. I'm like, but you can serve God without going to seminary. The overwhelming majority of Christians have throughout all of history. And in many ways, going to seminary, it, it's, it's almost, I've seen at times, it's a way of like getting out of the responsibilities God has put before you. And so I want to ask you, are you being faithful and showing mercy and compassion and love to those in your path, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? And in your city. You know, it makes the, the parable of the Good Samaritan just so brilliant. Because you can ask, like, well, who's my neighbor? Is everyone my neighbor? I can't help everyone. I don't have those resources at the time. And Jesus is like, well, who do you come across? I think the challenge for us is in our day, we can be very specific about the paths that we take. You know what I mean? You, you can actually drive certain routes and avoid need, which back in that day you didn't have that luxury. And what I love about this church, and I talk with Matt, I pastor Matt about this all the time. What I love about this church is this isn't a church that tried to get away from the need but stepped into the need because Middletown is a city that's filled with need. I mean, all people are filled with need. Every city is filled, but Middletown is filled with need, need that you can see. Unemployment, poverty, addiction, crime, homelessness, racial divisions. And what I want to challenge you with as a church is that this text and really Matthew's whole gospel, Jesus, I believe he gives us eyes to see that a city like Middletown that's filled with so much need is a place that's so rich with opportunity. It's so rich for acts of gospel faithfulness. There's so many opportunities to engage in acts of mercy and compassion and justice. That's my prayer for you guys. And that might mean connecting with Megan, who just shared the food bank that you guys have going, which is amazing. Might mean reaching out to people in your neighborhood, tutoring at-risk students, volunteering with big brothers and big sisters. There's all sorts of things. 
And I know that's Matt's passion. I know it's the passion of the elders here is to say, I mean, God, God calls us as his people to be salt and light. And so I just want to challenge you and ask you, what would it look like for you guys to take the next step in being salt and light in this community? As we move to the Lord's Supper, I forgot my communion cup, but you guys know how these, it's been a year, you know how these work. Uh, I do want to end by saying, you know, the liturgy, today's Palm Sunday, and it's encouraging to preach a hard text like this on Palm Sunday, because on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in Jerusalem claiming to be the king, and what did he ride in on? Rode in on a donkey. Not a war horse, not a stallion. He didn't ride in declaring, you know, he's coming with force. He rode in on a beast of burden because he came to carry our burdens and our sins. And so I think we, we should ask God and the Spirit to bring conviction where we need it, but also as we come to his table, this should be an opportunity for us to be reminded that we're saved by grace and that our God, our God is exceedingly compassionate. And they took the burdens and sins, our burdens and sins on himself to make us whole. And so as you, Christian, take part in the Lord's Supper, I want you to be reminded that his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your mercy and your grace. We thank you, God, that you are a God who cares not just about what we believe, but about who we are and who we're becoming I pray, Lord, that as a lot of the restrictions and chaos from COVID are lifting, Lord, I think there's going to be just such, such a season of opportunity. There are going to be hurting people who've gained new addictions or deepened in the addictions they had over the last year. There are going to be lonely people, people with mental health struggles. There are going to be just so much need, which means so much opportunity for your people to step into. And so, Lord, I pray that you would rouse this church to action, to, to live and lead lives marked by mercy, love, and compassion to be salt and light so that your name might be glorified and so that good might be done to our neighbors. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.